but it took those 20 plus years to just to even feel what that meant, you know, to have animals die and to have a black bear come and kill my sheep and to have drought and to have fire and to have the wicked cell phone company try to trick me into letting them build a tower and to have a house sitter get drunk and slaughter an animal. All these, all these events that took place in those 20 plus years um, made me feel my own commitment. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with writer Pam Houston, who's the author of six books, including the 1993 bestseller Cowboys Are My Weakness, as well as a more recent travel-themed novel called Contents May Have Shifted. Her newest book, out in January, is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Now, this new book is an exploration of her 20-year effort to create a home on an isolated stretch of ranch land up in the Colorado Rockies. Pam has lived a life of travel and adventure ever since she was a teenager growing up in an abusive home in suburban New Jersey, so I was really keen to talk to her about how to reconcile a life on the road with a hard-earned sense of home on her own ranch in the Rocky Mountains. Pam has taught English at the University of California at Davis, and her shorter-term writing workshops around the world attract a cult following. I was on faculty with her at the Santa Fe Writers Workshop last month. She taught a memoir class, and I taught a travel writing seminar. And in between classes, I was able to sit down with her for a 40-minute chat about the joys and challenges of creating a sense for home. I actually wrote a short essay about home that I've been meaning to share on the podcast, and this seems like a great opportunity. So at the very end of this episode, when Pam's interview is done, you'll get about three minutes of me reflecting on my own notion of balancing travel with home. Pam and I start with a brief discussion of teaching and what it's like to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with students who'd rather talk about weird emotional or cosmic topics than discuss the task of writing itself. Let's listen in. I don't do one-on-ones because people are just too fucking crazy. I mean, I do one-on-ones with the people I want to. Oh, really? Know, like, well, no. I mean, like, they'll say, do you want to go get coffee? And I'll go, sure. Right. But I don't do, like, mandatory one-on-ones anywhere. Really? Mm -mm. I won't do them. I've just had too many crazy people, like... Does it create, um, like, an expectation, you think, for more one-on-one, -on -one or...? No, it's just people... I mean, over the years, like, people have just gone completely crazy at one-on-ones. Meaning they treat you like a therapist or something? For one thing. Or they lock the door and ask me to play the piano, or they bring me a giant chocolate cake and tell me to eat it in front of them. I mean, like, like I mean, like, crazy shit. <laughs> I don't get this, Pam. <laughs> wow, maybe I, yeah. I had, I'll tell you a story about what happened in Taos once. This woman came to her one-on-one back when we, back before I started saying I don't do one-on-ones, which is just what I say now. Mm -hmm. And we had to have the meetings in our rooms because that was how it was set up. And we had like a little sitting area. It wasn't like we didn't have to sit on the bed, but it was basically in our rooms. And you know, you have like 12 normal ones and then you have the one crazy person. But she came in and she was like, she said, well, and she had brought something that was super, super, super rough and kind of crazy and a little bit racist. And I thought the class had been more or less gentle with her, given that her crazy was showing on the page, you know? I thought we'd done a good job and given her some good comments and hadn't 
been like, this doesn't make any sense, which it barely did. So she brought it and she's like, and she sits down and she goes, this isn't how it was supposed to happen. And I said, what? She said, we were supposed to be walking arm in arm on the beach, you congratulating me on my great New York Times book review. This is like the first moment and I'm like, well, first of all, this is New Mexico. <laughs> like, just for starters. <laughs> just for starters. Like, there is no beach here. And second of all, you haven't written anything yet. But anyway, and then she produces this giant piece of chocolate cake. And there was a restaurant in Taos at the time where if you could eat this piece of chocolate cake after your meal, you got your meal for free because it was like that rich and dense and huge. And so she puts it down in front of me and she's like, I really want this, but I can't have it. So you have to eat it. And I was like, nope, <laughs> no, won't be doing that, you know. And then she said, I should have known that you were going to hate my story. And I said, well, I didn't hate your story, but why? And she said, because everybody knows Thursday is bad story day. <laughs> okay, that's when, that's when it's really going sideways. So I always think about that whenever I pick who goes on what day. I'm like, Thursday is bad story day. I had no idea, but I guess now I will know that. And then she said, uh, she goes, well, this is just, you know, one in a long series of things that have gone wrong in my life. And, you know, I just, now I'm gonna kill myself. And uh -huh. I said, you know, I can't help you with that, but if you want to get out your manuscript, we've got like 11 more minutes <laughs> we can talk about how to make it better. And that was my last one-on-one. -on -one. Really? Like, okay, I'm done with that. May as well quit that. while you reach the apex. I'm done with it. Wow. Because I've had lots of weird ones, but that one was sort of, you know, all of it rolled up in one. Was it because of, do you think that this strange candor slash imbalance is a result of your personality or your writing? I do. Okay. I mean, a, you know, a result of, I don't know about that. I do think um, I had certain kinds of dysfunction in my family, which attracts similar dysfunction. My mother had borderline personality disorder, and so I, people can read, even before I knew that, you know, which was like I wrote my first book and then I had therapy. So even before I understood that, people can feel it like they can feel that i'm a caretaker hmm. and that i will caretake a borderline so i get because a you did that growing up was you played that role a lot growing up mm -hmm. but i, I sort of want to hear your story you know last year i said i'm gonna do a podcast and now i have 48 episodes um oh cool which and it's been a lot of fun and you suggested uh you, you do some work in prisons and maybe we can talk about that if we have time mm -hmm. but since your book is coming out maybe we can just talk about your story you know yeah. i like that the tension of travel versus home, you know, uh -huh. uh, and living a life less ordinary, which you certainly have done. Um, but in a sense, your travels and your less ordinary life have defined you, but so is your home. Uh, and now it's the, the subject of a book. Right. Uh, so, and actually there was a line uh, in an essay that you wrote for Outside that's talking about this moment that life changes from being in front of you to something that happened when your attention was elsewhere. Mm. What did you mean by that? Well, I think you've already said it. I, you know, um, out, or, or, uh, my publisher, W.W. W. Norton, asked me to um, 
to come up with some adventure I wanted to go on because they think of me as an adventurer and a traveler and that's what I've been most of my life. And I thought it through and I thought of different things I might do. Um, I'm really interested in the Arctic and I'm really interested in Turkey and there's like, there's, there's sort of big trips that could be very involved and have a nice blend of, you know, outdoor landscape exploration as well as culture. And, you know, I have a short list of those, like probably you do too. Um, and I sort of ran through them in my mind and then it was like, no, wait, like I've already been on my adventure and that's really what that line means, you know. Um, while I was going off to here and off to teach here and off to see that and off to do this, I was coming home repeatedly to this landscape that was shaping me and my growing connection to it and my growing sense of responsibility about it was making me a different person than I had been when I bought it for 5% down in this adrenaline rush of like, oh, a ranch, a piece of the, like I was so young and. And this was 120 acres in Colorado and you were 30? I was 30. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was exactly 30. And by the time you got the suggestion of a travel book and you realized that maybe home was the experience you really wanted to write about, was right. it like 20 years later, 25 years later, something like it that? It was, um, yeah, I was, 30, I was 53, 22, 23 years later, yeah. So how did, how did that place in Colorado come to inform your life over that two decades? Well, I think, um, I mean, so many ways. And um, I mean, one way is just this idea of home. Just, um, you know, I didn't, my parents were travelers. I grew up in a very violent, dysfunctional household. I was an only child to much older parents who didn't really want to be parents. They just wanted to put enough dollars and cents together to get in the car and go somewhere. They didn't like where they lived. They weren't connected to place in any way. And so it took me, I mean, I knew when I came out west the very first time as a much younger person that you know, I had sort of found the landscape I wanted to be in and I felt very connected to the Colorado Plateau in particular. Um, but it took those 20 plus years to just, to even feel what that meant, you know, to have animals die and to have a black bear come and kill my sheep and to have drought and to have fire and to have the wicked cell phone company try to trick me into letting them build a tower and to have a house sitter get drunk and slaughter an animal. All these, all these events that took place in those 20 plus years um, made me feel my own commitment and the decision about seven years ago to go halftime at Davis so I could spend all of the deepest winters, which is when most things go wrong. So I could spend every December, January, February, March at the ranch, um, being aware of it and not trusting that to other people. I mean, I still have to travel for work. I still love to travel for work. I still love to travel full stop. So I still need a lot of help with the ranch. That has led to a lot of really wonderful relationships of people who've come and helped me tend it and stay and young writers who've written books there, all of that. I mean, I just think unlike 
with travel where you go somewhere like I went as a young person to Bhutan and I fell completely in love and could have come home and just written and written and written about it. I think with the ranch, it took me time. It was about sitting still, which I'm not good at. It was about watching the seasons go by. It was about understanding that, you know, in September you buy your hay and in October you go get your wood and in November you turn all the outside water off and just all of those steps. I mean, that's how the book's organized um, in an almanac, in the form of an almanac, because it's just going in and out of the seasons. I mean, that's how it got under my skin and that's how I, you know, it slowly revealed itself to me that it's an adventure and it's just a, it's one that has a different shape and a different time frame and a different, um, a different kind of impact on my life. And by Davis, you mean UC Davis, where you're, you were teaching out in California. Yes. Um, and yeah, this really interests me because it's like the idea of travel, you're moving through places, but through stillness, you sort of let a place move through you a little mm, bit. You that's know? nice. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that, that was interesting that you just said is um, coming back for the winters. Because I have a piece of land in Kansas, which I'm very close to, but I always leave in the winter. Uh-huh. You know, I was yeah. in Hawaii last year and Mozambique the year before. You know, yeah. um, And so it feels like at a, at a certain point, maybe it didn't feel like you were really experiencing your land unless you were there for the hardest time of it. And you, and just to clarify for my audience, you, you don't live at the edge of Aurora, Colorado. You no. live in very <laughs> isolated part of Colorado with a very extreme weather. Yeah, I live at 9,000 feet near the headwaters of the Rio Grande. <clears throat> in the wintertime, I'm the last manned property on my road. In the summer, there's some ranches that extend beyond my place, but in winter, those people all move to town. So I'm the last house. Um, and they stop plowing at my driveway. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and so, yeah, it's extreme. I mean, it's less extreme now since climate change. It can still get to 30, 35 below. We can have four or five feet of snow at one time. Um, it can blow and blow in, you know, it can be days before I can get out of my driveway. So yeah, it's, it's pretty extreme conditions. And, and it wasn't so much, honestly, I mean, first of all, I love the winter. I love the cold. I love the snow. I, do, I don't do very well in heat. Um, but it wasn't so much like I thought in order to have the experience I needed to winter there. It's really more like things break in the winter and animals die. And I just felt like if I, you know, I mean, I don't call myself a rancher or anything, but just I owed it to the land to make it my responsibility to make sure we could dig to the barn door or to make sure the water trough didn't freeze or to make sure we had enough firewood. You know, <clears throat> I didn't feel comfortable uh, year after year leaving that to other people. Um, not that they wouldn't even necessarily do a better job than I would. In some cases, they do. It's really more about like, well, I say that I love this ranch. I say that I'm its caretaker. So go take care of it at the time that things are most likely to happen, basically. And is this an ongoing thing now? Are you uh, there quite regularly in the winter? Or was that an experimental phase of? No, no, I'm, I don't ever teach. Um, at Davis in the winter anymore. <clears throat> um, that's part of my deal with Davis. We're on quarters there still, so I don't teach ever teach winter quarter. 
So I'm basically available to be at the ranch always, no matter what's happening between about the 6th of December and the 1st of April, which is really the rough time. Um, <clears throat> I like weather. I like rough weather. I like cold weather. Um, and, you know, if someone says, would you come to Hanalei Bay to teach a workshop for the last week of January, I say yes, <laughs> just to be clear. Right. Um, uh, but I do like to not be gone uh, consistently during that time. Well, I read somewhere that you um, have been sort of making your own living since you were about 16, you know, sort of working for your own life. And you've always lived sort of an untraditional life, sort of backcountry, living out of a tent type stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when you chose to buy a house um, that would sell you from that would counterbalance all the travel in your life. It was this isolated, tough, difficult type house. Right. Another line uh, that, I, that, I, that you um, wrote was, how do we become who we are in the world? We ask the world to teach us. Mm -hmm. So what does a stationary place teach you in a way that, that travel doesn't? The hardest thing about writing this book about the ranch is that uh, I understood narrative tension in a completely new way. Um, for contents may have shifted, which is called a novel. It's very personal to me. When I turned it in, I said, well, we can call this a memoir or we can call it a novel, whichever you think is best given the climate and how people are feeling about. And was this 2012? Uh -huh. So 10 years earlier, before your student James Fry was, was, right. was outed, right. um, they may have called that a memoir. Huh? Of, I, I, they absolutely would have. Huh. I, don't, I feel like there's no question about it. Yeah. And I said to them, you know, I said, I, I, this is my story. All of these things has happened to me, more or less. I took some liberties with the truth. Like, that's what I said. I said, right. you call it what you want. And they said, fiction. And I said, great, you know, because I consider myself a fiction writer. But... The name of the protagonist is Pam, and it's quite obviously um, inhabiting the middle ground between fiction and nonfiction intentionally. Okay, so that, but anyway, that book is all about motion. It goes to 144 places, it moves very fast, it's in and out of scenes, it drops in and out of scenes, and one scene is in Tunisia, and the next scene is in Indianapolis, and the next scene is in Point Reyes, and the next scene is in Bhutan. It moves very, very fast, and it has all this what I would call vertical energy. And I, that, I don't even know how to explain what I mean by that, except that that's how it feels to me. It feels like it pops up, and it's, it's a series of little sparklers <laughs> like firing off into the night. And with this book, which is about stillness, and which I am much more uncomfortable with, I have a much more uncomfortable relationship with sitting still than I do with motion. Um, it's also about responsibility to one place. It's also about ownership, which makes me uncomfortable. Um, the narrative tension, I had to find narrative tension in a way that felt like literally irrigating, like, like water running horizontally out across a field. It, none of that pop of the other book was available to me. 
And I said to myself when I started writing, you're not going to rely on your old tricks with this book, which is a ridiculous thing that I just said to punish myself, evidently. But What are your old tricks? <laughs> I don't know. I guess this sort of vertical energy, this fast, this quick change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, and we could, we're talking right now about two books, but we could be talking about my life, you know, like mm -hmm. how I moved and moved and moved and moved. And, and, and I don't mean necessarily moved my home, but how... You know, I used to always say I'm happiest with one plane ticket in my hand and the other one in my underwear drawer. You know, it was all about where do I get to go next? And that's still my default. When I'm unhappy, I think, where do I get to go next? What do I have to look forward to? And <clears throat> this book was about none of that. You know, this book was about what does it mean to commit to a place? What does it mean to commit period. <laughs> what does it mean to commit to 120 acres? I, when I was, the whole time I've been writing this book, I said to myself, I kept saying, or to other people, this is the single greatest love story of my life. It was a phrase people liked, so I kept saying it. And then after a while I thought, huh, that's interesting. You know, um, it's not even a dog. <laughs> you know? It's an inert piece of land. Like, like one thing not to have a committed partnership with a human but now we're not even talking about the dogs, which is the way I avoided that conversation for like 25 years. Now we're talking about like a meadow, you know, which on the one hand is beautiful and on the other hand might suggest some limitation. <laughs> and and so, so I think writing about that commitment and like investigating it, you know, scared me because I was afraid it was boring, you know. Again, like I hear my, I hear the phrases I'm using right now, and it's, you know, it could be so applied to, you know, my, like my relationship life, my relational life, but, but I think that 25 years of commitment to the ranch, the five or six years of investigating that commitment in writing, led me completely unintentionally and inadvertently to being able to make this commitment that I just made to a human. I just got married two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. So like, and I didn't think of that until I was just sitting here, but I think the ranch taught me how to make a commitment and how to stand in even when you don't want to because the bear has killed all your lambs and it's really sad or because you're just so sick of not being able to have sushi forever or because all your friends live in vibrant, sophisticated cities and you're out there with the frickin' snowplow guy. You know, all of that, um, <clears throat> nevertheless, it was easier for me to commit to the land than it was to a, a romantic partnership. Um, and I'm not, you know, I've been married for three weeks, so I'm not <laughs> making any promises. I'm just saying that I don't think I ever would have gotten to the point of getting married and saying, okay, you know, we're, I'm 57 years old, he's 61. Like, we're signing up for the rest of our lives, let's hope, at this stage. Um, I would have never gotten there without making the commitment. And that is something that travel would have never taught me. Travel taught me a whole opposite set of things that were valuable, right? How to love the moment, how to suck up a place for all it's worth in three weeks or six weeks or three days. You know, how to find the thing, how to find the best food or the best latte or the best view or the best, like find it now, be quick. You know, I love to go into cities and just, you know, feel my way to the best thing. 
but that's a whole different skill set than like, how are we going to love this grass for 12 months a year, you know, for 25 years? Like that's a completely different skill set. And I'm much more naturally attuned to the other, to the travel, to the fast, to the do it fast, find it out, go to the next thing. So is that the tension in your book then? Just the forcing yourself to slow down and, and um, throw yourself into the grass from season to season instead of the grass in 12 different countries in 12 different months? Yes, that is certainly one of the tensions. I mean, there's other tensions. There's, um, you know, there's the fact of what's happening to the climate and the planet and the fact of, you know, how we self-implicate and how we take responsibility in that. And there's, of course, you already mentioned the tension about my mom and um, the fact that I w was looking for home because I never had a home and then I didn't know how to have one, you know, which I guess is, a, is related. Well, you but, talked about that. We were, were sitting in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the Santa Fe Writers' Workshop, and in your reading, you talked about how you wrote this book about a place in Colorado, and somehow your mom ended up being a, a big part of it, as right. she ends up being a, a lot of part of your writing. And it's interesting how, and this is a big general observation, that our first sense for home is naturally with our parents. You right. know? And then when we leave home, we have to reinvent it in some way. Right. Um, and so how did this, you know, in life and on the page, how did this... How did you make sense of all this in relation to the home you were born into versus what you wanted to invent for yourself in Colorado? Well, there was a very early draft of the book that when I, f when I first wrote Deep Creek, I, the earliest drafts, I really tried to stay on the ranch, like to stay on the ranch emotionally, to stay on the ranch physically. Um, the final draft of the book, wanders to other countries and to other places emotionally. But I really tried <laughs> the first time through to just to not leave the ranch, and to write deeply into the grass. And what, um, what kept you from, from staying there? Oh, it just, um, it's, not, it's not true to my experience. I mean, that's one thing I realized. Like I was trying so hard to stay there in the book, but in fact, I don't stay there. Like my relationship to the ranch is defined by like a thousand leavings and a thousand returns. So, and I love the ranch the way someone loves it who doesn't get to be there all the time or who also has this passion for the unknown. And so at some point I realized I was, I wasn't being true to my own experience of it. And the things I've learned there are related to the fact that I come and go. Um, so that's why. But anyway, I turned the book in to my agent when it was really stationary. Um, it was much shorter. And she said, isn't this the book where you really talk about your parents? And I thought, dear God, have I done anything else in my whole writing career? And she's like, well, you haven't really. You haven't really gotten into it. And like that threw me because I thought like if there's one thing the world does not need is more writing about Pam's parents and her childhood. Like, cause I just feel like it's all I ever talk about, which isn't essentially true, but that's how it feels to me. But I did write about it in a different way. And I think, and, and there's not a lot of it in the book. I mean, percentage wise, but 
it becomes and is the reason why the ranch became so meaningful to me because I was not parented in any sort of traditional sense by my parents. And even as a kid, I let you know, the beach at the Jersey Shore or the Pocono Mountains parent me. And so then I found this ranch that mothered me and that where I could mother the animals and my friends and the young writers who come to stay with me. Like it, so, so parenting became a big verb in the book, mothering and parenting. Um, there's a story, in our last interview for, for my Travel Writer website, you talked about walking nine miles to a sleepover as a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. To my friend's house. I mean, yeah. is that sort of an emblematic of the world in which you were raised, in that you could, that your parents' world allowed um, young Pam to just walk nine miles to a sleepover? Sure. I mean, the very last sentence of Deep Creek is... My mother always said, I don't want to even see you till dinner. And with those words, she allowed me to go out and love the earth, you know, and that's kind of my, I mean, that's my peacemaking with my mother, right? Like she never wanted to see me. And sure, I could get, I could pack my backpack, my little backpack loudly in front of her and storm out the door and walk nine miles to a sleepover. And she would be like, eh, you know. <laughs> and so the great gift my parents gave me with their negligence was freedom. Like freedom to go see, freedom to go explore. I once, did I tell you about the Tower of London? I, <laughs> we were in London. I went, my mother wanted to see, she was an actress, she wanted to see shows. And we went to London and, and I was, I think, eight but I might have been nine, but some age like that. And, and, you know, they were getting drunk in the bar like they did. And I went all the way from wherever our hotel was, a long way through a very complicated set of underground subways, you know, the tube, right, to, to the Tower of London, took the whole Sunset Beheadings tour at like eight by myself, came back, you know, on all those tube stops. And, and I mean, that was not unusual. Like that was my childhood. So, so I grew up very fast, you know, not that I was out there, whatever, you know, getting solicited by prostitutes. Like I understand if I wanted to go see something, they were just gonna sit in the bar and get drunk. I was, I was gonna go. And, and so, so all those things, while they weren't parenting in any real sense served me in my life, my life as a traveler, and ultimately in my life as a, ran as a, as a, as a fake rancher. Like I, if something breaks, you know, I gotta fix it. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I feel like, I'm, like, like I, I always say this, but I, I can't imagine who I'd be if I hadn't had those two people as my parents. Like, I, it's not like I long for like a happy childhood because then how would I have turned out? I'd probably be hapless and, you know, maybe not funny. <laughs> so, so I really don't, like, I'd never walk around saying, oh, I wish, I wish they had paid attention to me. I wish they had loved me. I wish they hadn't been drunks. I really don't. Like, to me, um, you know, I wasn't parented. I wasn't mothered. And so I found this ranch to mother me. I also 
found all these young people to come and live at my ranch that I get to mother because I didn't want to have kids. Are they students? Mm -hmm. they're, they're students from, you know, they're grad students who finish their grad program and then they need some time to write their book and they're interested and they want to learn about animals. And so I've had, a, you know, I have a whole series of them year after year. They come usually for about a year, get their book done and f feed the animals and when I'm not home and we talk a lot about writing and then they're off to whatever their next thing is. Is there a literary grounding in, in, in your home or your search for a home? Because like I grew up reading Edward Abbey, Desert Solitaire, and, and Annie Dillard, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, and right. Aldo Leopold, another naturalist writer. Yeah. So was that, was that part of the fantasy that preceded this, or has it informed the way that you see your land, or is that a separate thing entirely? Um, I, the books that pop into my head, I mean, Edward Abbey is who took me to the Colorado Plateau, absolutely. Um, my Antonia, you know, jumped into my head. It was a book that was super important to me when I was a young person, and obviously that's about home. Is I don't set in Nebraska? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I don't think I read many books about home. I don't think I was interested in home. I can remember, like, falling in love with Alice Munro as a young writer, and think, and then having everyone say domestic, domestic, and I thought domestic. Like it seems to me, she's doing so, something so much more interesting than that. So, I never sought out books about home. I did seek out books about place, you know, which is really different. I, James Galvin's *The Meadow*. I read that as a young writer, and 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 I always think about *The Meadow*. I thought about *The Meadow* the whole time I was writing *Deep Creek*. Um, uh, and just you know, I think Abby's love of place and. And um, Ann Zwinger's love of the Southwest and Terry Tempest Williams, you know, those were writers that when I was sort of understanding that I could interpret the world best through landscape, those were the writers that really mattered to me. So while not about home per se, it's about feeling a landscape and feeling yourself through that landscape. Has writing been important? to your relationship with the land? Because it occurred to me as I was preparing the interview that um, it's not super normal for, for a woman uh, to go and live by herself uh, on the Colorado Plateau, but presumably there are other women who do it but don't necessarily write about it. Right. <laughs> uh, um, which is interesting. That would be interesting to find them and, and do an anthology or mm -hmm. a, a, an oral history or something. But has the knowledge that you might one day write about it been a part of your relationship to that land? Um, not as an active thought. I mean, I really, I mean, I've written little bits and pieces about it, of course, over the years, ever since I moved there, the way you do, you know, for magazines or anthologies or whatever. But it really wasn't until the moment when my publisher said, we want you to go on an adventure, and I said, no, wait, this is my adventure that I imagined that I would be writing a book. I mean, I, I didn't imagine I would be writing a book about this place until I started. And even then, my editor was like, well, we want 100,000 words. And I said, this isn't a 100,000 word book. It's a 50,000 word book. You know, and she's like, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. And like, like I, I walked into it with trepidation, among other reasons, because I knew I had to stay still. <laughs> I didn't know how long I could stay still. And I didn't know if I could stay still for 100,000 words. Now, 
a few things happened after that, like the West Fork fire, um, which burned 110,000 acres right down to my borders, um, my property line. And so all of a sudden, that was a big chapter that I was given by nature. Um, and that's a 60-page chapter. So that, that made the book a lot bigger. Is it 100,000 words now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 103, <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> um, and also, then I realized I could move a little. Like, there's a, there's a section of the book that's called Elsewhere, and it's about, um, it's about, it comes back to the ranch, but it's about some other places that I think talk with, you know, with climate change and with other things that the book's doing. I, I, I took a trip to the Eastern Canadian Arctic, and there's a section on that. I took a trip. Um, up to the Great Bear Rainforest uh, in Canada, and there, there's, a, there's an essay called Of Spirit Bears, Humpbacks, Manatees, and Mothers, or something, and that's kind of my roving chapter that goes around but keeps returning to this idea of um, protecting the land and home and motherhood and mothering, and do you drop the earth off at the vet, or do you stay while the vet gives it the shot? You know, it, it addresses those things. So, so I, so the book expanded to a hundred thousand words, but not without leaving the ranch, which again, like I gave that up as a goal because I understood it wasn't true to my experience. What's the hardest single thing the ranch has given you? <laughs> the knowledge that the, the sweetest things always die. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like, the sweet donkey that dies and the obnoxious donkey that lives. It's always the lambs that the bear gets. It's always the, like it's, it's always the kindest thing that succumbs and the kind of tough, meaner, obnoxious, annoying things that live forever. <laughs> That's pretty much, it's kind of like the politics, right? It's kind of like the, the current regime. Um, uh, so that is probably the hardest lesson, that the sweetest, the sweetest things die. Huh. Well, you have, a bear sometimes eats your sweetest lambs, but you're wearing bear earrings right now. I'm wearing smoky bear <laughs> earrings. Smoky is a protector of the forest. Right. <laughs> and did that, are those the same from your story about, about uh, falling in love? Mm-hmm. Did, did your husband give those to you? He did. Yeah. He's a forest ranger. Okay. He oh, has okay. been a forest ranger for 40 years. Wow. He has worked for the Rio Grande National Forest for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So yes, he gave me these smoky bear earrings. And he knows everything about trees, and he knows everything about the forest we live in, and, and the plants, and like, how could I have resisted that? Is he on 120 acres now? He isn't because he's uh, still working, and he lives an hour closer to his job than I do. Um, he is going to retire at the end of February, and then he will move to the ranch. And he's selling his place, which is a lovely place, on the river um, to his daughter for the special daughter discount. <laughs> and is this going to be its own adventure, living with someone else on your land? It is. I was just talking with a friend yesterday about that, you know, and she said wisely, okay, now the book's done. Now the bear has come and eaten the lambs and given you a chance to close the first quarter century on, you know, it's been 25 years I've been at the ranch, 
and now you're going to open a new quarter century where you share the ranch with someone and where you have a new relationship to it. And uh, she was very clear that the bear was the good news. The bear just came this May. We're all still a little rattled by it because I had never had a predator. The livestock eating bear. Mm -hmm. I had never had a predator take livestock. I mean, I've had livestock die in lots of ways, but I've never had, I've never been stalked by a predator. And he came back four times and he just kept killing. And no matter how we tried to stop him, he defeated us and including fish and wildlife tried to stop him. So it was a lot of us trying to stop him and he was really like, he was an, a bear with a big intention. <laughs> and he wasn't hungry. He didn't eat anything. He just killed to kill. And he was so, a sport bear. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he was a sporting bear, <laughs> exactly. Um, and it really rattled me because I, again, I take myself and my ability to protect my animals seriously and I couldn't and it was hard. And um, so I have thought of it as this thing I have to recover from. And yesterday my friend was like, no, the bear was a gift. The bear was marking the end of, I was like, okay, this, here I am in Santa Fe where people understand things better than I do. So, um, well, it's very narrative, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's the second plot point that leads into the third act. That's right. right. You That's had, right. You had 30 years of wandering the earth and 25 <laughs> years of, of being wedded to the land. And right. now you're wedded to the land with a human and apparently a bear that hunts your livestock for sport. Right? <laughs> right. Well, yes. And I mean, hopefully we're done with the bear. But, but, but yeah, I mean, I do think this is a new chapter. And I think, you know, I want to be intentional about going into it. Not just like, oh, here's a drawer for your socks, you know, <laughs> like I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want, like now I am, you know, I, I've always been very good at motion. I've always been very good at, I mean, you, you could hear and the stuff I've said, I'll do it myself. I can do it myself. I don't need help. That's my MO. Um, that's how I was raised. And so now I've got to uh, enlarge myself <laughs> to not have that immediate reaction and to say I'm going to share this place that's been that I feel very protective of that's been my safe spot I'm going to let you into it and we're going to make it our spot and we're going to start a new adventure and and my friend yesterday was just telling me that and you know telling me what I already know and uh, and I think that's right but it's all very new I mean I just finished the book I just got married like well, yeah, I mean, Within how many, months. have you even cohabited on the land yet? No. Okay. So I mean, occasionally, but not, right. no. Yeah, not, his stuff is in his, his house. His socks are not in the drawer yet. Is <laughs> his socks are not in the drawer yet. No. No, they are not. All right. Now that Pam has talked a bit about reconciling a life of travel and adventure with creating a home in Colorado, I'm going to read a short essay about my relationship to home after having traveled the world for two decades. It's an excerpt from a book called Forever Nomad. You can also find a version on my website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Here goes. Years ago, when I was trying to finish writing a book about the philosophy of long-term travel, I ran into a problem while outlining the final chapter. My intention in this chapter had been to speak to the importance of and difficulties inherent in returning home after an extended life-altering journey. The problem was that I had not yet returned home myself. I was writing my book in a residential hotel room in southern Thailand, and the very notion of home was, for me at the time, vague. Yet somehow I had intuited that returning home, or perhaps finding a new sense for home, was a key part of the travel process. 
By that time in my life, I'd been traveling through Asia, Europe, and the Middle East for nearly three years. And in the two-year expatriate stint, I'd spent teaching English in Korea, and it had been five years since I'd lived in the U.S. for any extended period of time. Since I'd found steady work as a freelance travel writer, I could have extended my overseas journey another five years, but somehow I knew the point of a long-term journey isn't to travel indefinitely. The point is to travel in such a way that it enhances your life in a way that is unique to your own way of being in the world. In many ways, those three years of wandering across distant continents gave me the best experiences of my travel career, and I've never quite traveled with the same existential intensity as I did back then. The book I wrote in that room in Thailand, Vagabonding an Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel, has since been through dozens of printings in several languages worldwide, and I've visited dozens more countries on every continent on the planet. I've driven a Land Rover across the Americas, sailed the Aegean Sea, hosted a Travel Channel Thanksgiving special, started a summer writing workshop in Paris, lectured at Penn and Yale, lived multi-month stints in New Orleans and Havana and Rio, written three more books, and in a test of extreme minimalism, traveled around the world for several weeks with no luggage or bags of any kind. These new adventures were all great, but they really couldn't compare to that first overseas vagabonding journey because they were happening to a person who was already used to traveling. The thrill of traveling long-term for the first time is a singular joy by the very nature of its freedom-rich novelty, and the more you travel, the more your relationship to it changes. This needn't be a bad thing. The more you travel long-term, and the more you realize that long-term travel is cheap and accessible enough to do again and again over the course of a lifetime, the more it becomes an integral part of your life. As travel becomes more integral to your life, it also becomes less novel, but it also becomes deeper and richer, slower and more nuanced. One of my favorite travel acts in the years since I wrote Vagabonding was getting a home of my own on 30 acres of prairie near my family in north central Kansas. Now on the surface, living in a home place where you can be still and centered would seem like the opposite of travel, but in a way my many years of travel have made my home seem that much more satisfying, and being there is not separate from, but very much a part of, the greater journey. Everyone travels in different ways, and I think that every experienced wanderer balances the idea of home and travel on his or her own terms, but one amazing thing that travel teaches you is that coming home, or finding home, after a long trip doesn't spell the end of your wandering, it just deepens your relationship to the adventures yet to come. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Pam Houston's books, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.